We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name's Eddie. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is June 29th, 1983. I have a sponsor who I sadly rarely call. (laughs) And uh, I need to get better at that. And he reminds me every time I see him. And I have sponsees. I sponsor guys. So, uh, and I have a home group, which I won't mention, but it is a fantastic meeting on Saturday mornings. My story starts with, you know, I was, I always knew that I was adopted. I don't remember when I was told, but my parents told me pretty young because, like I said, I always have known that. And for me, it was probably the first, the first reason that I had to consider myself separate from others. I'm unique, I'm special, or I'm unique, I'm less than everyone else. So I kind of used that, you know, uh, my my ego used that to keep myself separate from others uh, at a young age. And I had fantasies of uh, my my rich uh, birth parents coming and (laughs) taking me back and bringing me to this fantastic place and, you know, that life life would be better on the on on the other side. Uh, the grass is always greener, but um, obviously that never happened. And and my parents were actually fantastic. Uh, my mom was amazing and extremely loving and caring, and always believed in me, even when I didn't believe in myself. Loved me no matter what, and she was a great example for me that I carried into adulthood uh, with my kid. So. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was five. That was the second thing that I used to consider myself different from others. And so that was hard, I think. I, I don't remember, obviously, a lot of it. I remember worrying that maybe I had caused them to split up, but I don't think I dwelled on that too much. Shortly after they split up, my mom started dating, and there was a couple guys that she dated, and she worked as a waitress at a, a little bar um, in a shopping mall. And she so she dated a couple guys, one of whom I really didn't like at all. And the other that I, I thought was really cool and a nice guy. And when I was seven, oh, I forgot to mention my sister was adopted when I was three and a half. And she was adopted as a baby, just like me. And then, obviously, my parents got divorced a couple, just less than two years after that. So my sister grew up uh, not considering my dad her father. I mean, she really didn't know him that well. And So anyways, um, when I was seven, we were both sent down to San Diego. And by the way, I grew up in Foster City in the, in the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco and grew up in, in on the peninsula. And uh, we were sent to San Diego to 
stay with my grandmother. And when, and we did that for, I don't know how long, maybe a month. When we came back, um, my mom told us that she had married Ron, this guy who, the guy who I did not like at all. (laughs) And there was another reason for me to be angry at the world and consider myself unlucky and, and, and needing to be um, rewarded somehow for having to endure this hard life that I had. (laughs) And that theme kind of followed me uh, for many, many years, but I hated this guy. I hated Ron. And I, and I let him know every chance I got and I wouldn't allow him to like weed his way into my life. You know, I followed his rules and stuff and I did what he said, but I did not like him. And as I got older and into my teens, that got to be a lot more caustic, that relationship. And, uh, and we had some pretty big major bouts. Um, sometimes I was drunk. Sometimes he was drunk. Sometimes we were both drunk and, uh, some fist fights happened. And, um, that was, you know, that's a kind of a major turning point in my life. I would consider that a major turning point when she married Ron. And I, you know, and for years I tried to convince her to divorce him. <laughs> I never succeeded, but so, you know, I wasn't happy at home. And when I was 13, I got together with my friend, John, who had swiped a bottle of Bacardi from his mom. And I drank, we drank both of us. It was our first time. And it was painful. I mean, it hurt going down, but it was blissful coming up. I mean, it just, the feeling was, you know, I remember thinking to myself, this is something I'm going to do every day or I'm going to have in my life on a regular basis. And this seemed to, you know, I, I, I threw up, I got sick. I, I was a mess, but uh, there was something there that, just got into me and made me feel like somehow this is this is home and with all the stuff that i i felt that i had been enduring in life i felt like i deserved this i deserved this reward which would be this thing that would take me away and take me out of my head take me out of my pain and really you know obviously looking back the pain was completely created in my own head. What well, didn't really have much to do with the reality on the ground. So we, you know, I started drinking and smoking and, you know, within the, within less than a year, I was still in middle school. I got arrested for possession of marijuana at school. It was embarrassing and it was humiliating and, My parents were beyond pissed off. And so at this time, my father, I would see my father um, after they got divorced. I would see him regularly. Like he lived nearby in San Mateo and and I would visit him. I think every weekend or every other weekend. But then as I started to get older and I started partying, I stopped. I didn't see him as often. And he didn't really want to have anything to do with this whole situation. He was embarrassed. And he was not very supportive. 
but my mom and my stepdad, you know, like laid into me and, um, you know, and, and I had to go, I remember having to go to the police department and like a week after I got arrested and talk to them about my experience, um, and you know, and what, what I'm going to do moving forward or something. And I, I remember that you know, telling them, oh, this was, you know, I was just trying this for the first time and I was never going to do it again. And I just laid out this whole bullshit story. And I remember being really proud that they seemed to buy it, that they were like, well, this, you know, they told me, or they told my parents, I think he's got a good head on his shoulders. He just got mixed up with the wrong crowd and he should be fine. And, and I thought, well, this is great. I'm really good at this. I can do this. I can lie whenever I want and make up, you know, the, a reality that works for me. And that's what I did. And I, I was, I think I was really good at it for a while. You know, I went to high school in my first year of high school. Uh, I went to Hillsdale high school in San Mateo. And I, the first semester I missed more classes than I actually attended. They threatened to kick me out if I missed, if I cut one more class in the second semester. I didn't. And then when the year was over, I transferred to San Mateo High School, a different high school, where I had some friends and um, continued to party with John. John was my kind of go-to guy and my best friend. And, um, you know, we were drinking regularly. Um, I really couldn't face the day without some form of alcohol in my body and, and using all kinds of drugs, whatever, kind of whatever we can get our hands on. I never shot anything into my arm, but I don't know if the opportunity came up. I don't know that I would have said no. I just didn't have, it just didn't come up, but somehow I continued to get through school and I really don't remember much of high school. I'm not sure quite how I graduated because I don't remember doing much homework at all. Honestly, the only time I remember doing homework was the night that um, John Lennon was killed. And I remember my stepdad coming in and telling me when I was, I was writing a paper or something like that. Um, and just because of the momentous event and, and how tr you know tragic it was and how upset I was about it, that kind of, reminds me that I was actually doing homework that night. Otherwise, I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure I did, and I'm sure it was half bullshit and half a little bit of work, but I was I was out of my mind for most of high school. And by the time I got to my senior year, I had alienated most of my friends. I was hanging out. I was working at Taco Bell, and I was hanging out with guy a guy that was older than me who could keep up with my, the, the amount that I drank and the amount that I partied. And I still had some friends at school, but you know, they were kind of, yeah, they, they just didn't hang out with me as much because, you know, my usage was way beyond what they were comfortable with. And about halfway through the year, one of our friends was taken by her parents in the middle of the night to drug treatment. And we were all so upset about her parents violating her freedom and putting her away and she didn't deserve it and all this stuff. But it got me thinking that maybe 
maybe I had a problem. And maybe I should, you know, look into that and maybe think about it um, and maybe try to stop. And so I decided I was going to stop drinking just to see what it was like and to see if I could do it. And I did for about 24 hours. And that was all I could do. And that got that kind of planted a seed in my head that maybe I have a problem. Whereas before, I always thought that I could stop whenever I wanted. So shortly after that, like within a week or two, I can't remember if it was, it was coming up on Christmas. And this friend of mine, this guy who I hung out with, who I worked with at Taco Bell, we had this great idea. We thought, let's go up to Woodside where all these oak trees are, and we're going to pick mistletoe, and we'll bag it up, and we'll go and we'll sell it at the at, in front of the grocery store. And we'll tell everybody it's for charity. And we did, and we made a lot of money. <laughs> and that's, you know, another one of my really shameful things from um, my, those, those, my old days. But we did. We made a lot of money. And we bought a bunch of booze and a bunch of drugs. And we got high for, I don't know, three or four days. I was gone. I had my parents' car. They didn't know where I was. I didn't call them and tell them anything. When I, when I, like the, the haze started to clear and I started to regain some sense of sobriety, I realized I'm going to have to go home at some point. And when I go home, they're going to freak out and they're going to yell and scream at me for like eight hours straight. So I needed something. I needed a story to tell them to, to kind of get out of having to deal with that. So I went home and I told them with this thing in the back of my mind already planted that I think I have a problem with drugs and alcohol. And that's, that's what happened, you know, and my mom was like, okay, well go to your room. And we'll talk about this and, uh, you know, just, just stay in your room. So I went to, I went to my room, I went to bed and at like four in the morning, they woke me up, put me in the car and drove me to Peninsula hospital in Burlingame and checked me into the drug treatment for, um, for youth, youth drug treatment. They don't have it there anymore, but, but at the time they did and, there was a adult wing and there was a um, minors wing. So I was in drug treatment and dr drug and alcohol treatment. And, you know, I think I was, I was willing to give it a shot. Everybody else there, everybody who was there was there um, against their will. Most of them were there. Most of the kids there were there because the judge had ordered them to go. And a couple were there because their parents made them go. And, you know, and I was like, I'm willing to give this a shot. And so I, I did. And, you know, it was pointed out pretty quickly to me that this term came to light called people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser. I had never heard that before, but it was absolutely true. I was willing to say and do anything to make sure that you liked me and um, that I wasn't saying anything that would offend anybody. Because if I did, then you might not like me, and that would be the worst. That would be the worst outcome possible. So, so that was my kind of first insight in treatment. 
and at the time, this at this time, I was dating someone who was older than me. She was, I think, 20 and I was 17. And she supplied me with drugs. Uh, we got to the part where I did my fourth step in treatment and and I realized that I needed to come clean with her. And I, I told her that, um, you know, most of the time I didn't really come over to see her. I came over because she had drugs. And uh, that was the last I heard of her. She never talked to me again. And when I got home from treatment, there was a box that she had dropped off with all the stuff I had given her and stuff like that. So, but, you know, the fact that I was willing to do that was huge for me. And and that's what this program started uh, to do for me right away was to start to get honest uh, with myself and with the people around me and to realize that. I was so buried in layers and layers of bullshit that I didn't know what was true anymore. And, and in order to climb out from that deep hole, I really needed to start to get honest with everybody. Even if, even if I felt like they wouldn't like what they hear, which was really hard for me to do, but I did and I did. Okay. And I got, I got out of treatment and one thing happened. So I still didn't like my stepfather and I, you know, and these, we were, we didn't get along at all, but during treatment, they had these therapy, like family therapy days where family would come and we would have this kind of group therapy. And my dad came once and then he told my mom, you know what? You raised him. This is your problem. I don't want to deal with this. And he, he didn't come again, but my stepdad came and my mom came obviously. And, and when I, you know, when I was done with treatment, they have a little graduation ceremony thing. And my sister was there and my mom was there and my stepdad was there. And he was the only one of all three of them that was crying. And it was, it was powerful for me. It still is, obviously. (laughs) You could probably hear it in my voice. It chokes me up when I think about it. Because here was this guy who you know, my father was a successful, intelligent dentist, and my stepfather was a undereducated foreman at a warehouse who came home and drank a six-pack of beer every night and passed out in the in his recliner and watched bowling on the weekends. And it was just there was such a stark difference between the two. And I really revered my father, and I did, and I hated my stepfather, but he was there for me at that moment and and it and it touched him and that really touched me and so that kind of started to open my heart a little bit to him i will say that my mom has since passed away my father has since passed away and my stepfather is still here and i go down to the bay area and take care of him and do what i can to help um in his old age we have a good relationship it's not great. There's still barriers between us, but I've tried to work through those and there's only so much I can do. Um, but he is who he is. And I think I've turned what could have been a disaster of a relationship into something positive in my life. So I got out and of treatment and I went to, I started going to high school back to high school and I met up with my old buddies and I, I slipped, I drank 
And I went to my meeting on El Camino in Burlingame and got up and said, I slipped. And they were like, no problem. We're just glad you're back. We're glad you're here. Keep coming back. There were, you know, everybody was very understanding and welcoming and that felt great. And then I slipped again and this went on and on. And after about the fourth or fifth time, they were like, you know, you, you need to start working more with your sponsor and working through these steps. And my sponsor at the time was a guy who I'd met at a, at a meeting I went to while I was in treatment. And he was a really nice guy, but he wasn't real strict about stuff. He didn't um, go through steps with me. Um, I think later, I don't remember when, I later had found out that he had been extremely inappropriate with one of his other male sponsees and was in jail for that. So it wasn't the best choice of a first sponsor, but that's the way it played out. And at some point towards the end of my senior year, I just thought, you know, I'm I'm just too young. This is not going to work. I want to party and maybe, you know, I'll try again in 10 years. And so I did that. I went to my senior night celebration and got shit-faced, came back and went through the graduation ceremony, even though I didn't graduate because I failed one of my required classes in my last semester. And uh, so I got a uh, one of those, you know, envelopes or whatever with your supposed to have your diploma in it. And I opened it and it said, uh, you don't graduate today. <laughs> so, and after after that, in the summer, my mom took me to, you know, I enrolled in the class I needed in order to get my high school diploma. And she drove me to that thing every day, every every you know whatever it was like a wednesday night or whatever at burlingame high school and made sure i went into the classroom and then in the middle of the class she i could see her head poking through the little window in the door to make sure i was there and she was going to make sure that her kid got his high school diploma no matter what and i did so i was still partying what happened was the the kids who i went through treatment with called me and said, they're going to have like a barbecue, like a little reunion barbecue. And would I come? And I said, sure, I'll come. So in the morning before the barbecue, you know, I drank. Then I went to the barbecue and we had a great time. And I had a really nice time with them. And then they took me to a meeting afterwards. So I went to the meeting with them and then they brought me home at night and I went to bed. And before I woke up in the morning, they were my mom came in and said, Hey, there's some kids here, you know, to come see you. So I went and it was them. It was like a few of them that I had been at the barbecue with. And they said, Hey, we're going to go to a meeting. Let's, you know, we're going to go hang out or whatever. And, and they took me and we hung out all day and we went to a meeting and maybe went to a meeting that night. And the next day was kind of the same thing. And there was this girl in the group who I was really attracted to and so that was my motivation (laughs) to hang out with them i don't want it to sound like my motivation was to be sober because it wasn't but somehow i i realized wait a second i've been sober for five days and then it stretched into a week and before i knew it i had a month and that this is how i got sober i never 
that that was my sobriety date. June 29th, 1983 was the day they came to pick me up for the that day, that first day. And I never drank a drop after that. I wanted I usually say I was I was dragged kicking and screaming into the meetings, but I wasn't really kicking and screaming. Um, but if if not for those kids, I don't think I would be here today. I don't know if I would be alive today. Um, I doubt it. Um, I'm always grateful to them. I don't remember all of them. I've seen a couple of them in, in years since. Some of them have gone out. And uh, yeah, so, but those are the kind of things that this program does for you. And I, and I have no doubt that my higher power was working through those kids. So the thing that I did after I had a few months of sobriety, I was working at a gas station. And I wasn't prepared to go to college at all. I barely made it through high school, as I said. And I was living with this woman who was, she was my music teacher when I was a senior in high school. She wasn't my teacher in school. I was taking like music theory lessons from her on the side. And uh, we got together and I was living with her. And I decided uh, to join the army. Now, I don't recommend joining the Army in your first year of sobriety. <laughs> if you're talking about big changes in your life, this is a pretty big change, and it was for me. But I wanted to travel, and I wanted to live in Europe, and I didn't have the money to do that. At the time, the minimum enlistment was two years active duty, and I thought I could do that. That's not a big deal. And, and I would get money for college, and I would get a chance to travel around the world. And so I did. I did that. In November of 83, I went to um, basic training, then on to occupational training in Georgia. And, and then they shipped me off to Europe and I was stationed in West Germany. At the time, it was West Germany near Frankfurt. And, and I hated the army. I really didn't like it. Honestly, I'm not very good with following orders. So it's not the best place to go if you're uh, my kind of alcoholic. But Somehow I managed to stay out of trouble and I managed to stay sober. There was people getting drunk constantly there. I mean, you know, I'm in Germany. There's beer, lots of it. But I was, when I got there, I was terrified to go out with the guys because I didn't have any support. I mean, I had no support group. I didn't have any kind of uh, network of people to, to fall back on if I needed help. So I, I didn't, I didn't go out. I stayed in the barracks. And uh, one thing I haven't mentioned before, but I am, I was raised Jewish and I was bar mitzvah and went to Israel and all that stuff. And, and actually I went to Israel when I was 16 and that kind of put the taste in my mouth for international travel. I really um, love it. And I still to this day love international travel. So I got to this base and the first thing I did was I figured out where I can find my higher power. And that was at this church. There was no um, synagogue that I knew of. And I wasn't a very religious Jew. I just, you know, I kind of identify with it culturally, but not so much on a spiritual level. But I did have a very strong spiritual belief. And it came from my kind of exploration of Eastern religion and Buddhism and stuff uh, when I was a senior in high school. And so, um, so I wanted to explore that more and, but I, 
at this point, all I wanted was to to find a source for my, you know, to bring my higher power into my life. And so I started going to this church and it was like a Protestant church. It was pretty, you know, non-denominational and, uh, and I enjoyed it. And I started reading the New Testament, which I had never read. And I got a ton out of that. It was really um, inspirational to me. And but, you know, I just I, I can still considered myself Jewish and that was fine. And um, and I just kind of took what I, I what you know, whatever I read, I just took what worked for me and I kind of left the rest and started. To, and I started to on this journey of the third step, you know, I started to define what is what is God to me? What is the spiritual journey and and how do I define my higher power? And I'm still on that journey today. And it's been it's been one of the biggest, the kind of the most joyous parts of my sobriety is to explore that and to have, you know, unexpected insights. There's a, a grateful deadline that goes uh, once in a while you get shown the light in the strangest of places if you look at it right. And that's kind of how my my spirituality has been. It's been just a real source of joy for me. So, so I started going to this church, and one of the things that happened was the first time I went, at the end, they said the Lord's Prayer. And I thought, oh, they got this from Alcoholics Anonymous, because I had never heard it anywhere else before. And uh, and I so I didn't know that it was like a thing, a Christian thing. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But I went there for a little while, and then when I felt comfortable— I started going out with the guys and they all knew that I was sober. So there was a guy, a friend of mine named Kevin, who he would like check my drinks. And occasionally, I, you know, I'd always order a Coke and he would check it to make sure there was no rum in it. And there was a couple of times when there was rum in it. And because, you know, it's loud in these clubs and they just assume you want rum and Coke. Why would you just want Coke? Right. But I got out and I, I enjoyed myself and, you know, I met. Lots of great people and beautiful German women and had the time of my life. And I traveled as much as I could. Every time we had a three-day weekend or a four-day weekend, I would take the train down to Paris. And uh, Paris in the 80s was unbelievable. And uh, I took a, a, like a, I think, four or five-week vacation, four or five-week leave, and went to the Greek islands. I worked my way down through Italy and then over to Greece and had an amazing time there. And that was towards the end of my tour. And they were asking me to re-enlist and telling me it's so hard out there and you really need to stay in the military and we'll give you a bonus and we'll give you all this. And and, uh, I got to Greece and I was laying on the beach and just enjoying the rays of sun and, and just enjoying freedom. And I realized there's no way I'm staying in the army. I'm getting out and going to college. Uh, but one of the things I did while I was in Germany is to start a meeting on base. And a couple guys from my unit started going. So I knew them. And then other people started coming. And as far as I know, that meeting went on for years and years. Um, and so that was really cool. I get out of the army. Uh, I come home and I start going to college. I went to community college because there was no four-year college that would accept me with my grades from high school. And uh, and I did pretty good. My first semester, I met someone and we started dating. We ended up staying together for many years and I married her and 
Then I divorced her <laughs> and I got through it all sober. I will say that she basically became my higher power for several years and uh, I stopped going to meetings. I'm, I'm so lucky that I didn't go out because she was my higher power. She was my, she was my, my group, my everything. And uh, that is a dangerous place to be. And so I learned a lot from that relationship. I learned how not to do that and how to, you know, um, I fell back into that people pleaser thing where I was trying to be who she, who I thought she wanted me to be. And since you can't be anyone but yourself, I failed regularly and I felt like a failure constantly. And so when we split up, um, the reason we split up was she cheated on me. And so it would have been really easy for me to latch onto that and just to blame her and be angry at her for the rest of my life. Uh, use that as another excuse for why life isn't fair to me. And I know what that would lead to, and it wouldn't be good. So so I've learned in this program, and at that point when we split up, I, was, I had about 10 years of sobriety. And I learned to, I, so I did a fourth step on it. I worked with my sponsor at the time. I did a fourth step. I realized my part in the end of the relationship, and her part was her part. If she wants to have better relationships moving forward, then she should probably work on that. But that's not my concern, you know, and that was a huge weight off me. And I think it allowed me to forgive really quickly and and not just forgive in the way that, well, you did something really wrong and I'm going to be the bigger person and forgive you. It was more like, you know, we both did stupid shit. This is how it ended, but it doesn't mean that it's all your fault. And so I, I'm trying to see you in the same way that my higher power sees me. And um, it was just love. And to, to this day, we're still close friends. She, you know, will text me every few months and say, hey, how's it going? She ended up getting married shortly, like, like two years after we split up, I think, to a guy who I really love. He's a fantastic guy. So that relationship could have been so much worse and the and the the wreckage of it could have been so much worse if i didn't have this program and the lessons that i've learned here and the tools that i've gained here and so that was that was just amazing and it continues to be a source of joy for me one thing that i didn't mention was this was around that time actually i think it was 94 so i had about 11 years and I got a call from my old friend, John. If you'll remember, he was the one who I first got drunk with the first time. And we pretty much had the same pattern or, the, you know, we, we drank and used the same up until the point where I got sober. And I got a call from him. And he was living in Vegas and I don't know, doing some shady stuff, but. He said he had this great car and I should come down and see him. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, sometime maybe. And that was it. And then like a month later, I got a call from this woman who I had dated, who knew John also, who grew up with him. And she said that he, they found him in a bathtub in a hotel room in Vegas, with a needle in his arm, and he had died of an overdose. And that hit me. I mean, it hit me so hard. And honestly, to that, you know, 
I think, I don't know if this is true for everybody, for, but for me around 10 years, I started to wonder, you know, maybe I was just young. I mean, I was just a kid and that's what kids do. And maybe I don't really have this addictive personality. Maybe I don't really have, you know, this allergy to alcohol and maybe I could drink normally, you know, that fantasy of drinking normally. And it was bouncing around in my head, which is never a good place to be. It's a bad neighborhood to hang out in. And then John died. And I realized that that's my that's what my future would have been. I mean, we were exactly the same. And he continued down the road that I veered off of, and he died. It killed him. So that was huge in my sobriety. And I never once, after that, I never questioned that I belong here and that that this program has saved my life and will continue to save my life as long as I as long as I work it. So fast forward a few years, I've had you know great friends. I continue to be friends with that guy Kevin, who I met in the army. I'm the godfather to one of his sons, and we're still friends to this day, which has been an amazing journey. He met me when I was uh, like less than a year sober and we're still friends now we're like brothers we used to go take vacation together in cancun every year for a week and he had a timeshare and yeah you know we'll go scuba diving together and just amazing amazing now it's interesting that he drank that whole time but he didn't really drink that much when he was with me and he has now been sober about 10 years he got sober about 10 years ago and realized, and you know, I couldn't tell him that he he belonged in this program. I suggested it a few times, but he had to come to it on his own. He lives in Maryland, so I don't see him that often. But that was just, you know, that's another source of joy for me in this program. There's so many gifts that this program has given me. I met Jeannie when I was about 36. And she was different from anybody I dated. We started dating and pretty quickly, you know, I kind of realized I had been in these long-term relationships where I was with somebody who I really liked, but I didn't necessarily want to spend the rest of my life with. And I realized I want a family and I'm getting close to 40 here and I need to, you know, like shit or get off the pot. So we ended up getting married and uh, we're still married to this day. Shortly after we got married in 2002, no, I'm sorry, 2004, where we moved up, I, I had gone through a period of unemployment in the Bay Area. This was after the dot-com, you know, I, I should say that I'm a programmer, so I kind of think of things in formulas, and I, I assume that, you know, if I can figure out the, the right formula, then I never have to solve that problem again. That's kind of the way my brain works. But I, so I was, I was working as a developer in the Bay Area and things just fell apart and I got laid off and I didn't work for a long time. And then I got a job offer. And so uh, we decided to come up here and she moved up here. And then after, shortly after she moved up here, up here, we got married. Uh, Then about a year later, we bought our first house and had my son. I had a new job, a new house, a new wife, a new kid. And I had not established meetings in this area. And one day I'm sitting there watching football on a Sunday. My wife comes in and she's screaming and the, ba- the baby's screaming. 
And she comes in and she turns off the TV and says, I need your help. You can't sit here and watch football. And I just broke down crying. <laughs> and I was like, I need football. I need something. I just, you know, I'm, I'm losing myself. I need something that was my old me. And, and uh, I'm sure new parents can relate to some of that feeling. She said, whoa, I think you might need some therapy. <laughs> and I said, you know, you know what I need? I need a meeting. I need to get to a fucking meeting because I haven't been to a meeting in a long time. And, uh, and I was just lucky that I didn't go out. So I started going to a meeting on Tuesday night. And I started and I, I started going every week and uh, I haven't stopped since then. So I've had these periods in my sobriety where I've kind of gone in and out of being active in this program. And I don't recommend it at all. You'll end up miserable. At, at best, you'll end up miserable in a fetal position, crying on the floor. <laughs> or, and at worst, you'll be you could be dead. But, you, you know, you'll be out there and, and uh, drinking and you know, it's, um, it doesn't have to be, you just have to keep yourself in the middle of this program. And that's what I've done since then. For a long time, that was my home group. And then I switched to the Saturday morning group, I've had a couple sponsors over this time, I've had a few sponsees, and I have um, a couple that I've had for several years, many years. You know, the way, the way I understand my disease is that I get up in the morning and I feel like I deserve something. I deserve, like, like life is hard. And so I deserve to have some treat, some kind of reward for putting up with the hard life that I have. And by the way, I have an amazing, very happy, fulfilling life. But that's how I get up in the morning. And then I have a list of things that, well, I'll, if I can get these things, then I'll be happy. And life will be good. And I set out to start getting those things. And when I fail at getting those things, which I always fail at getting all those things, then I feel like, you know, I'm in pain. That causes me pain. It causes me, it makes me restless, irritable, and discontent. And in order to, to satisfy that feeling, I seek out things that will make me happy or help me escape from that feeling. And uh, in the past, it was booze or drugs, but it can be spending money. I've had bouts of spending money in, in sobriety where I was nearly bankrupt. It can be a lot of things, sex, you know, gambling. It hasn't been gambling for me, but it could be for others. You know, it's this hole that we have right in the middle of our gut. It's always there. And we try to fill it with things that we think will make us happy. And it always fails. It's, there's never enough. The only time it's enough is if you put your higher power in that hole and fill it with a spiritual connection. And uh, that's been my experience. And, you know... I'm coming up on, well, I'll have 39 years in June, God willing. And by the grace of God, you know, I'll hit 40 years next year. And it's, that is a, an insane number to me. I mean, I think when you start to get into these high numbers, it, it, it stops being real. It's like, all I have is today. 
I have today, just like everybody else in this program, I'm grateful for today. And tonight I'll pray that I get tomorrow too. And I'll, and I'll thank God for the day that I've been given. You know, I get up and I say my seventh step prayer and I, you know, I, I do the things that have been suggested of me other than call my sponsor on a regular basis. <laughs> That's still a sore point for me, but I, you know, I have service commitments. I, I stay in touch with people. You know, life is really, really good for me. I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at retirement in, in less than 10 years and I'm excited about that. And yeah, things are Things are good, and they're only good because those kids, those kids back in 1983 would not let me, you know, skip out on this, on this gift. They, they, they made, they dragged me into those meetings. I'm forever grateful to them. And I'm forever grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eddie. And for the one hot girl for being a part of that group. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The kids in the program seem to, I don't know, fly by the seat of their pants. They do shit that grownups don't do in the program. And I, it seems to work out really well for them because I I hear it in these stories. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I see so many young people now, so many more young people now than I saw when I was young. And it's just, I love it. It's amazing. Yeah, definitely very different, I imagine, than in 1983. When when you talk about this, uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for sharing. I always enjoy listening. It's like a really good book, but I get to hear Um. it straight from the author. (laughs) So nice. Given everything that's going on politically right now around the globe and specifically in Ukraine, I feel super deep gratitude for the time you were in the military, even though you didn't Mm. want to be there and you hated it. (laughs) um, I suddenly have this patriotism that's painfully deep right now. I get it. I get it. So thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks. You spoke about this whole... And mm. filling it with your higher power. And I, I think it's hilarious that you didn't know that our father was Christian. And I, I, love, I love the Jewish upbringing, but reading the New Testament and finding wisdom in there, which aligns quite a bit with Eastern philosophy. We, totally. Talk to me yeah. about your, like, your beliefs today. You had spoken poetically about this journey that you've started and you're still on. What does it look like for somebody that might not know what that means? Yeah. So for me, my spiritual kind of my journey right now has led me to a place where I feel that, and the book talks about this, about the separation between ego and our true selves. And, um, and so for me, it's about, it's about breaking down that ego and the ego is, you know, made from the mind and it comes from fear and and so fear is my enemy kind of you know fear of of things that are imminent like right now are valid everything else is bullshit everything else is stuff created out of the mind if i'm afraid of something that may happen in the future then it's not valid and so 
so that's kind of my that's one little thing I use to keep myself on my spiritual path. But it's a journey, you know, it's a it is a path. Prayer and meditation, more meditation than prayer, I would say. The prayers are good. They um, like I said, I do the seven step prayer, I do the third step prayer. I, I do I do those because I've memorized them. And when I do them, I, it puts me into a certain state of mind where I'm more open to my higher power. But I don't always think about the words I'm saying, but it's almost like a ritual for me now at this point. Um, but the meditation is is great, and it really helps me to get in touch with my true self, uh, which for me, I believe the way I identify you know, kind of the source of what I come from, which is, which I believe is just one. We are all part of the same thing. Words like love, words like joy. Those are ways that I identify who I really am. Like I am joy. I am love. This physical body is not what I am. And so, and my mind and my ego, my same deal, same thing, wants to convince me that that it is my higher power and that it, you know, wants me to be afraid of things and wants me to, to reject kind of that, the idea that I'm part of a whole, that I'm part of one part of a, of a larger self that is, you know, that is love and joy and those kind of things. A few years ago, I was sponsoring a friend of mine, actually a guy I was in high school with, and he had called me and was in desperate conditions and and i got him into a madhouse and i sponsored him for a few months and one of the things we were on our way to a meeting and he said you know why is everybody like why do i have to be happy what's this whole happiness thing like and i'm like well you're just a you know just a crusty old man you just don't want to you just don't want to be happy that's fine if if that's your choice and but it made me start thinking about it and i realized that that it's true that we we have this you know desire to find the things that make us happy, and I meant to say this actually during my share, but I forgot. I started to talk about putting those things in that hole that make us that we think make us happy, which made me think of like that that line from the Declaration of Independence, um, the pursuit of happiness. That is a raw deal, man. Because I pursue, I try, I've tried my whole life pursuing happiness, and it always fails. And when I stop pursuing it. I get what makes me happier than anything. And, and to me, I've identified that as joy. And joy for me is, is like I said, what I come from. It's what I, it's my source. And it, it's running through me all the time. I just sometimes get out of touch with it. And it's so different from happiness because for me, happiness is a temporary state of mind. And if I don't get what I think makes me happy, then I'm unhappy. And they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And so this joy is what I aspire to, and it's and it's what I find when I work with others. It's what I find when I play guitar or do the kind of things that that take me out of myself. And so I guess you know it's kind of, I'm a little all over the place, but that's kind of my spiritual story at this point. You're not all over the place when it comes to me. <laughs> I'm just nope. my mind is blown because. The things you're saying is exactly what I was writing about last night and this morning 
which ah. is this difference between seeking happiness and experiencing joy. And it's mm. through my higher power and service. And you mentioned guitar, but I write. So my when I write, like there's, I have to work for it, but the yeah. joy is not the party we're looking forward to being like a climax of happiness. I think of the climax as almost a superficial. Totally. And then joy is just, complete connection with that the love yeah. that we are yeah time stops you just feel just filled filled with it right that's that's the goal but we work for it right we don't we don't like achieve it if we cross off all the things on our list then i'll be happy or then i'll have joy it's like no no you have to constantly work on it like you were talking about your prayers that are sometimes rote but there's mm. still getting your mental energy in that place where you're like, I'm giving the universe my time right now and I'm connecting. I'm kind of dialing in. Yes. Even if I'm not I'm, paying attention to the words. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And your meditation, is that hardcore sit down in silence meditation? Um, no. Sometimes I'll do guided meditations, but most of the time, you know, I, w- I wish I could I would meditate longer, but I tend to do like a 10 minute silent meditation, set my insight timer to for 10 minutes and, and do it. And, and I always feel great afterwards, but I, I would like to work towards longer meditations. I like that quote, uh, praying is talking to your higher power and meditation is listening. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Okay. Well, final question for the alcoholic out there listening, perhaps uh, away from the rooms for a bit or hasn't completely committed to the rooms yet. What message would you like to leave with them? Uh, Okay. So the message I would leave with them is that your life doesn't have to be miserable. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to have the pain that you may be dealing with. That this program does not require as much as you might think it does. It really is, um, for me, it's been a thing where uh, my higher power meets me halfway. If I'm willing, and in most cases, all I need is the willingness. My higher power will meet me there and drag me through the other stuff. It, it doesn't require a ton of work. It just requires that you are willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober. And when you do that, everything in your life changes. Everything, all of your relationships change for the better. And your life just gets better and it stays better. And it's not great every single day. I'm not going to lie. But my worst day sober, you know, it's an old saying, my worst day sober is better than my best day not sober but it's absolutely true and as much as i as much as time as i've spent in my life uh wanting things to work out the way i think that they should or the way that i think will make me happy when i've let go and i've just been willing to do the things that are suggested of me then the life i end up with is better than anything i could have planned there are things in my life that I never thought I would have or would even ask for. And it's only because of this program that I have those things and that I have the life that I have. 
For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.